Well, I don't know about you, but it seems as though every TV commercial for the last three months has included one of the following three statements. In these unprecedented times, or in these uncertain times, and now more than ever. And in each of those commercials, they've also repeatedly told us that, or they've told us what we need, they've told us why we need it, and they've told us that they themselves have it to offer. And they have it to offer, and they're being so gracious to give it to us because they are not only looking out for us, they're standing right beside us because they are here to help. I think that's 99% of the commercials out there right now. And I don't think you'll be surprised to hear me say that these may, in fact, these are unprecedented times because these particular events have all come together, they've converged together in a way that they've never done before, so I get that, but I don't believe these times are any more uncertain than they've been in the past or will be in the future. Times are always uncertain, and I think it's safe to say while these aren't the best of times, they most certainly aren't the worst of times, even though they are difficult times. And they're difficult times for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that what's going on right now and the events that have been taking place are emotionally charged and divisive. So we acknowledge that. But even so, we also acknowledge and believe that the Lord remains sovereign. He continues to rule and to reign from his throne where he is working providentially in the midst of all of these things that are going on for his glory and for our good, for the good of his people. And tonight I firmly believe that he is going to speak through his word, through that which he has already spoken. He's going to speak through Hebrews 11 and he's going to encourage us and he's going to strengthen us by reminding us of the faith that we possess tonight. And we possess that faith so that we are able to keep a firm grasp on the hope that is ours tonight at this very moment. Not only today, But every day, regardless of the circumstances. And this faith and hope is not only ours, but it it is available to anyone and everyone who has ears to hear. And brothers and sisters, it's our responsibility to proclaim it. So with that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, this that we are about to study, that we have just read and are about to study is your word. And we would ask that in these moments that you would speak to our hearts. You would assure us of the faith you've given us. 
We ask that you would give us rest for our souls. Use me as you see fit. In Jesus' name and for the sake of his church, I pray. Amen. And amen. I hope you're in your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, You'll remember last week that Pastor Miller walked us through the very strong admonition at the end of chapter 10 um, regarding not shrinking back and forsaking the Lord Jesus. In that admonition, he, he warned them of the consequences of doing so. And it was a very strong, they were, there were very strong consequences. And, and he encouraged them that because of those consequences, that they needed to remain confident and endure to the end. And the key verse was found in verse 31 where he said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But the end of the chapter, he followed that admonition up with some very, very encouraging words. He said in verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He wanted to encourage them by letting them know that he believed that while there were some who would in fact shrink back, there were those who would return to their Judaism, there were those who would... And have to answer to the Lord for for forsaking his son. His readers were not among them. He even included himself. And he he writes and he says, we are different. We have faith. And what he's going to do in chapter 11, what he does from chapter 11, verse 1, through the rest of the chapter is provide an explanation of what faith is. And then he lays out chronologically several examples, Old Testament examples, that hall of faith, as I've already mentioned. And they are examples of that faith as it is exercised. But while this is, again, as I mentioned during our time with the children, while this is typically called the Hall of Faith, we're not going to look at these biblical characters, and my encouragement is not going to be to be like them. My encouragement is going to be, as we walk through and at the end of of these messages, is let's exhibit the faith that we have seen this evening and that we see through these examples, because it's our faith. We possess that same faith. And it's a faith, again, not focused on people, but it's on a faith whose object or that has its object, um, faith whose object is God. The same God who is the God of, of promises, and it's, and it's the same God, the same faithful promise-keeping God whose promises were the same for those of the Old Testament and those for the New Testament, as well as for us tonight. So with that said, the, our outline, two points. We're going to look at what faith is and what faith affects. Again, this is part one of of what will be several messages, or at least four or five, in that we'll title by faith. So, what is faith? 
what faith is. Verses 1 and 2, the writer actually doesn't give us an in-depth definition. He doesn't give us a, a deep, exhaustive definition. But what he does do is very clear because he says that what faith is is very different than many believe faith to be today. It's very different than what is most commonly heard. He, he speaks of something that isn't simply positive thinking or optimism. He doesn't describe it as something that's thoughtless or irrational or illogical. He doesn't describe it as a feeling at all. He doesn't describe it as a a subjective hunch. He doesn't talk about blind leaps. And he doesn't talk about enabling uh, the creation of new realities. He doesn't speak anything of naming and claiming health, wealth, and prosperity. The writer says, faith... Is this the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen? What does that mean? Well, faith is an objective, substantial, and foundational surety, it's a foundational certainty, it is an objective. Confidence in God and His Word. And in the words of R. Kent Hughes, it makes the future, faith makes the future present and the invisible seen. Richard Phillips says, faith makes real to us things that are otherwise unreal to our experience. It presents to our hearts things that cannot be seen with our eyes. And William Lane says that faith permits a Christian to exercise a present grasp upon undemonstrable truth. So faith is what gives us eyes to see and ears to hear spiritually and to hear so confidently and to confidently trust in what we see and hear spiritually as if they are actually, or those things that we are seeing and hearing, were actually seen and heard physically. And that's because by faith, we possess them all. They're all ours. Faith is, faith is like a deed to a house when we haven't moved in yet, or a title to a car that we're not driving yet. And In both cases, we already possess those things because of the deed and the title, although and we also possess them through our anticipation of them. And so it is with our faith. Now, what are some examples? What are those things that we hope for? What what are those things that are not seen, that we're convinced of? Let's start with a few of those things not seen. As our study has revealed several times since we began, Christ is right now at this very moment interceding for us as our great high priest at the throne of grace 
having presented himself as the perfect satisfaction or sacrifice that secures our way of approach. It's unseen, but it's a reality. It's true, it's sure, it's objective and and certain. Another is that Christ is right now ruling and reigning as sovereign king who is holding together everything he created in heaven and on earth and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He's upholding everything by the power of his word. All things have been put in subjection under his feet. Right now. You and I are adopted sons and daughters of the living God. We're co-heirs with Christ because we have been forgiven of our sins. We've been washed clean. We've been declared holy. And we have even been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life and saved solely because of the great mercy and love of God. It's a reality. Certain. Objectively true. And of course, we are right now seated with Him in heavenly places. But what about those things hoped for? What are a few of those things that we hope for? Well, we hope for His return. We're hoping for our resurrection. We're hoping for our glorification and our glorified bodies. We have a hope of being with Him. We are hoping for no more crime and a time when every tear will be wiped from our eyes. We hope for no more death or mourning. We hope for no more pain. We hope for no no more injustice and everlasting peace. And that's that's not just simply wishful thinking. Faith assures us that the spiritual is real, guaranteed, and permanent. Regardless of what we experience in this physical, material world in which we live, it's so real that they are considered already present realities. Listen to these words of John Calvin. He once wrote, The Spirit of God shows us hidden things. The knowledge of which cannot reach our senses. Eternal life is promised to us, but it is promised to the dead. We are told of the resurrection of the blessed, but meantime we are involved in corruption. We are declared to be just, and sin dwells within us. We hear that we are blessed, but meantime we are overwhelmed by untold miseries. We are promised an abundance of all good things, but we are often hungry and thirsty. God proclaims that he will come to us immediately, but seems to be deaf to our cries. What would happen to us if we did not rely on our hope? And if our minds did not emerge above the world out of the mist of darkness through the shining word of God and his spirit? Faith is therefore rightly called the substance of things which are still the objects of hope and the evidence of things not seen. The author says it is by this faith 
that he's just described that the people of old, some of whom are listed here following, it's, it's through that faith that they received their commendation. It was their faith that brought God's approval. It wasn't their status. It wasn't their standing. It wasn't their position. It wasn't their own mind and power. It wasn't their own merit in any way. It wasn't wealth that they had accumulated. It was their faith that pleased the Lord. And brothers and sisters, the same is true of us. The faith we possess is the same faith they possessed. It is no different today than it was then. What brought them approval brings us approval. And that faith, as we are going to see, led to activity and action. It affected their lives. Their faith was made evident through their works and, and how they lived. And that brings us to this second point of what faith affects. What does faith affect? There are a few. First, we see that faith, uh, faith affects our thinking. In verse 3, the writer says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And this is much more than just a transition statement. Uh, it's a very profound statement. It's a statement that not only sets up his chronological walk through these examples uh, that he's chosen, but it provides a foundational aspect of faith. And he, he says it is faith that affects our understanding and enables us to believe that God created the universe and all that's in it uh, from nothing. Out of nothing. And in so doing, he communicates a couple of points. First, he, he's stressing that what is it required to understand the beginning is the same thing that's required to understand the ending and everything in between. He's saying that everything, the entire story of redemption from beginning to end and everything in the middle is inextricably linked to one another. Because God's past purposes cannot be separated from His future purposes. They are together. They are one. And as far as redemption is concerned and as far as our faith is concerned, the end is actually a part of the beginning. So the understanding of creation is no different than the understanding of redemption or recreation. And it's no different from the understanding of the consummation of all things. Every bit of history, the history of redemption that is revealed by the Spirit is grasped by faith as real and as true. And if we don't have faith, apart from that faith, everything from the beginning to end and in between just doesn't make sense and is actually foolish. Second, he's stressing the fact that from, again, start to finish and beginning to end, the object of our faith is, in fact, God and His Word. Because the same God and the same Word that was powerful enough to begin redemptive history is powerful enough to bring it to its successful conclusion. So the object of faith has not changed from then to now. Well, the next thing, in verse 4, he says, faith affects our standing. 
in verse 4. He says, by faith, Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Now, in verse 4 of Genesis 4 that I read as a part of the Old Testament uh, reading tonight, it says that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And when we put these two verses together, we're able to answer the question that is most often asked when we read Genesis 4-4 by itself. And that question is, why did the Lord have regard for Abel and his offering and not Cain and his offering? And the writer of Hebrews answers this question very certainly. He says that the Lord had regard for and approval of and approved of and was pleased with Abel and his offering. Because the Lord had commended him as righteous. But then we ask, well, why did the Lord commend him as righteous? And the answer is because of his faith. He had been commended as righteous because of his faith. Abel was looking to the Lord in faith. So the Lord commended him as righteous. And because the Lord had commended him as righteous, he regarded Him and his sacrifice as more acceptable than Cain, who was not looking to the Lord in faith. It was Abel's faith, in the words of our confession, that it was that faith that was the alone instrument of his justification. And how do we know that he possessed faith? What is it that, that lets us know that? And how do we know that his offering was sacrificed or his sacrifice was offered in faith? First, because the author of Hebrews has told us so, right? So we know that to be true. But, but secondly, we know because of the type of offering he presented. We know because of the type of offering, of the sacrifice that he offered before the Lord, which is the third thing that our faith affects, which is our worship. Right? He offered the firstborn of his flock. And it was a blood sacrifice. You remember, I'm sure, that, that the Lord had uh, revealed the manner in which sinners could approach him to Abel's parents, Adam and Eve, back in Genesis 3, verse 21. And it was there that um, he said, the way, he had said earlier that the wages of sin would be death, but he was gracious at that time after they had sinned and he provided an animal that served as a substitute who died in their place and then he took that skin of the animal and covered their guilt and shame. And it is assumed, of course, that this way of approach was passed along to their children. It was something that they had informed their children of. And and so having it passed on to them, Abel looked to the Lord in faith, but... Cain did not. While Abel looked to the Lord, Cain looked to himself. Abel brought a sacrifice that the Lord had prescribed, but Cain did not. Cain tried to approach based upon his own merit and his own way and through his own means. But Abel came trusting in God and His Word. Though he was a sinner, he came And and brought a sacrifice that covered and atoned for his sins because it pointed to the future sacrifice of of Christ on the cross. And as a result, God's wrath was satisfied. His disposition towards Abel had changed. changed. And, And brothers and sisters, our faith is of course no different. 
It is the same justifying, saving faith that Abel possessed. It's a faith that looks to Christ for us. It looks to Christ as the only sacrifice for sin and the only one to whom we will find forgiveness and, and receive the righteousness that we need that is outside of us. It's through faith that our standing changes from guilty to not guilty. It is through our faith that we're changed from clean, uh, unclean to holy and from enemy to child. It too, our faith is the alone instrument of our justification. And that faith shapes our worship. It shapes how we worship. We don't come in our own way, in our own merit, by, by our own methods We come as He has prescribed, as He desires. We come in faith. We come in Christ, having been united to Him. And we are able, through His one sacrifice for us, to offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, looking to Him and resting in the means of grace through which He has determined to meet our spiritual needs. We're trusting in that. Well, in verses 5 and 6, the writer moves to the next thing, and that is our communion. Faith affects our communion. He says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And what we know about Enoch is primarily found in Genesis 5. He was 365 years old when he was taken up and couldn't be found anymore. We don't know how that happened, but we do know why. And it doesn't tell us in the Genesis account, but again, the writer of Hebrews tells us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that it was because of his faith. And because of his faith, as well as his walk with God that pleased God. And I put it that way because in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, it says that Enoch walked with God in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the the Hebrew Old Testament. It says that he pleased God. Um, One commentator said that they basically mean the same thing. Another said uh, pleasing God was a working definition of what it meant to walk with him. Another said that he who pleases God walks with God. So I determined the best way to say it was that he walked with God, which pleased God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to walk with God? It, it means a intimate fellowship or communion with Him. That walking with God is, is an intimacy and it's an ever-expanding and constantly growing relationship in which, in which the knowledge of, appreciation for, and devotion to Him is deepened as time is spent. For you and me, as we take walks together, Wendy and I took a walk together this morning, and it was, you know, I'm usually one that I just, I don't walk without a purpose, and I'm usually, you know, I want to get after it, and and today I just like, you know, let's just, it was more of a saunter, and she's not used to that, and she was way out ahead of me for a while, and, and so we really weren't walking together, right? Because why? You have to walk together. You have to be walking the same pace and in the same direction and with the same destination. And it's the same as walking with the Lord. 
We know that Enoch walked on the same path and at the same speed. He was moving in the same direction and he was heading in the same uh, toward the same destination as the Lord. And he had done so for many, many years. And it produced righteousness and peace and obedience and unity and conformity. And it pleased the Lord greatly. Enough so that that walk and that communion and fellowship that they shared could not be broken by death. Now like Abel, whose faith preceded uh, his being commended as righteous, Enoch's walk with the Lord was preceded by faith as well. Faith came first. The author says it was by faith that Enoch was taken up. And he also says that he wouldn't have pleased the Lord without it. As a matter of fact, he says that apart from faith, it would never, have, or it would have been impossible to please the Lord. Why? Because he would not been would not have been walking with him. Faith had to come first. First, so the communion and intimacy and fellowship and walk with the Lord was a result of faith. That he possessed. His faith produced that walk. That pleased the Lord. And once again. The author also describes the object of that faith. That produced that walk. And that the object was the Lord himself. Drawing near to the Lord. Was impossible by any other means. The writer says that the faith that enabled Enoch to draw near was the faith that believed and trusted that God is, that God exists. And not only that he exists, but he exists as the one he has revealed himself to be. His faith didn't have a God, it didn't have the object, didn't have as its object the God of his own making. It wasn't a God that he had created, but his faith was in a God who not only made promises, but kept promises and keeps promises. He fulfills his promises. He promises rewards to those who seek him. He fulfills that. He has promised that those who seek him will in fact find him and their reward will be great because they will be heirs of an eternal inheritance. And again, brothers and sisters, that same communion, that same intimate fellowship is available to us. It is what we possess We have that. We we can not only draw near, we can walk with Him, talk with Him. We too can increase our knowledge of Him, our appreciation for Him, our devotion to Him, as we obey Him and rest in His promises. And we do all of that by faith. Trusting in Him. Ours is a faith that too believes that He is, that believes that He exists, and that He exists as who he has revealed himself to be, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. You know as well as I do, we don't have faith in a God of our own making. We don't have faith in a Jesus that is different as he is revealed in the scriptures. It is by faith that we are too, by faith in him that we, we too are heirs of an eternal Lastly, verse 7. Our faith affects our witness. 
Verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And we all know the story of Noah. He's warned of that judgment that was to come. It was come upon the earth due to the wickedness of men. And he was given instructions on how to build and uh, build an ark that would be used to deliver him and his family from that judgment water of the flood. And he was mocked due to the ridiculous nature of the project and because it seemed to be pointless and impossible. We have to remember that everyone was wicked. But Noah's reverent fear of the Lord and his faith in him and his promises led to obedience. Even in the midst, in, even in the midst of that, in the face of that, he stayed the course. He refused to compromise or relent. His certainty and assurance of God's promise of deliverance kept him going. Right? His clinging, his clinging to that which he couldn't see pro- propelled him forward to not give up. And to do what the Lord had asked him to do. And as the people watched, they were confronted. They were confronted with his devotion and his single-mindedness and and his faith in the Lord. And the unbelief of those who looked on was not only evident, but it was magnified. Because of the faith he was displaying. But what's interesting is that he not only bore witness through his life and his actions, he also, Peter calls him a herald of righteousness. So he not only lived it, he spoke and even preached of the righteousness of God. He preached to those around him. He spoke of the righteousness of God and the wickedness of man and the judgment that was on the horizon. And he would call those who would gawk at him and mock to to repentance and to believe and to have faith in God. And again, like Abel and Enoch, that faith that was... That so greatly affected his witness came prior to and was an instrument through which he ultimately became an heir of righteousness. And so we ask, what do we take away? What is, what is, what is that, that question that I always ask? What is, the, what is one thing? Here's my one thing this week. In light of these unprecedented times, in light of these uncertain times, now more than ever, we need to be the people that God has called us to be who walk by this faith and not by sight. We're called to walk by this faith. I like the writer of Hebrews. No, I do like the writer of Hebrews, but I meant to say I, like the writer of Hebrews, am very, very confident in you. I'm confident that I can say we are not those who shrink back. We are not those who are destroyed. We are those who have faith. And preserve our souls. The words of Peter. He says we know. I believe we know. 
that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are people that know that he's caused us to be born again through that resurrection to an inheritance that is imperishable, that's undefiled, unfailing, kept in heaven for us. We are, we are a people that know that by God's power we are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And it's in that that we rejoice. We rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes through Though attested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though we have not seen him, we love him. Though we do not see him now, we believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. I believe that describes Brothers and sisters, the faith that we are to exhibit is the same faith that those exhibited before us. We have the same faith that it affects our thinking and our standing and our worship. It affects our communion and it affects our witness. It's ours. It is in our possession at the very moment. And I, I believe I can be bold and say that the world needs us now more than ever to live in light of that. And to live in that way. Whether they admit it or not. Whether they recognize it or not. And despite the amount of pushback we might get, the world needs believers. The world needs Christians. The world needs the church. The world needs us to live in the assurance and the confidence that makes the future present and the invisible visible. The world needs to see that hope. They do not, brothers and sisters, they do not need us to be like them and believe what they believe and do what they do. They need us to be the called out ones that we are. The called out ones. Those who are ready and willing to give a defense for the hope that we have and of which we are sure. They need us to be. They need it. Well, they don't need us to trust in and live as though. What the world offers and what the world does and what the world expects and what the world strives for and how it strives for it and what the world rests in is helpful and hopeful and sufficient in any way. Because it's not. We need to trust in and live as though what Christ offers is not only real. But ours presently and sufficient. And it is in fact available to all who call upon the name of the Lord. 
And it's that faith and hope that enables us. It does and will enable us to endure any trial, any setback, any injustice, and the uncertainty of tomorrow. Let's live as though there is more to the story going on around us. Because there is. And the faith that we need to do that is ours. And the faith that we need to do that is ours in Christ. And may he strengthen it. May he help our unbelief for our sake and for the sake of our neighbor. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.